A reading from 1 Corinthians. Now, concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Anyone who claims to know something does not yet have the necessary knowledge, but anyone who loves God is known by him. Hence, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that no idol in the world really exists and that there is no God but one. Indeed, even though there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. It is not everyone, however, who has this knowledge, since some have become so accustomed to idols until now, they still think of the food they eat as food offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do, but Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if others see you, who possess knowledge, eating in the temple of an idol, might they not, since their conscience is weak, be encouraged to the point of eating food sacrificed to idols? So by your knowledge, those weak believers for whom Christ died are destroyed. But when you thus sin against members of your family and wound their conscience, when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food is a cause of their falling, I will never eat meat so that I may not cause one of them to fall. A good slogan is a powerful thing. All the way back in 1947, Smokey Bear started telling people, remember, only you can prevent forest fires. And for more than 70 years, that simple slogan, and you know that picture where he's pointing like right at you? And it feels like if you mess up, then you just, you just know that Smokey is going to find out and be disappointed in you personally. Those things have helped to prevent wildfires, except at gender reveal parties, apparently. Back in 1988, Nike launched a campaign called Just Do It. And those three words, just three words, have inspired generations of kids and athletes to push themselves and achieve more. It sold billions of dollars in merchandise and produced some of the most iconic moments and images in sports. Until now, that swoosh and those words, they're just part of our culture. We all know that a slogan can be powerful because we've seen them used in powerful ways. 
Make America great again. Yes, we can. These were brilliant political slogans that brought huge numbers of people together. We've even seen slogans launch social movements. Love is love is love. Black lives matter. These words have changed the world. But but for all their power and usefulness, the truth is that slogans are not always helpful. They have limits, right? Like, slogans don't allow for much nuance. They don't help us to communicate complex information. They don't foster much critical thinking and reflection. And that's fine when you're trying to sell sneakers or start a social movement. But it's not great when you're trying to discuss and find unity and make progress around an issue that that has ethical and theological and social and racial and historical and economic dimensions, like abortion or gun rights or, or criminal justice reform. Most issues in life are more complex than we realize, and their complexity and their fullness can't be captured in a few words or a slogan, and reducing complex issues to just a few words, to a a soundbite or a pithy saying, usually just keeps us from truly engaging one another and moving forward. And if you need evidence that this is true, just go read Twitter. See whether reducing complex issues down to 140 characters has been helpful for our civil discourse and our common progress. In our reading this morning from 1 Corinthians, we're introduced to a church that's experiencing a lot of conflict and division. Things got so bad that some people in the church wrote a letter to the man who had started their church, a man named Paul. They told him about all the problems they were having, all the arguments, all the issues. They they told him their reasoning and their thinking, why they were right and others were wrong, and they asked him to weigh in. It's like the ultimate example of running to dead. And today's reading is some of Paul's response See, one of the biggest things they were fighting over was whether or not it was okay to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols and pagan gods. And I know, I know that now, 2,000 years later, that sounds like a really strange thing to be arguing about. But the city of Corinth was, was huge and diverse, and one of the most common forms of worship was to sacrifice animals in a temple. And there were a lot of temples dedicated to a lot of different gods. And after an animal was sacrificed, that meat was sold. Almost all of the meat you could buy in the city had originally come from a sacrifice, and the Christians there just couldn't agree on whether or not it was okay to eat it. On one hand, you had people who pointed out that 
there's only one God, that idols aren't real, and food doesn't make you closer to God or further away, so who cares? And on the other hand, you had people who had grown up worshiping these idols and who thought it was wrong to have any connection to worshiping someone other than Jesus, who worried that eating this meat was an offense against God and could damage their faith. This was a complex issue. But human beings love to reduce complex issues into something that seems simple so that we can make the other side, those who disagree with us, appear foolish or wrong. And that's exactly what happened. The group who thought it was fine to eat this meat, they were convinced that they had more knowledge and wisdom and stronger faith, that they were more enlightened than those other people. And that's exactly what they told Paul when they wrote to him. And one of the things they wrote in their letter to him was their motto, their slogan. Four simple words that they had embraced and repeated. And we know this because Paul quotes it back to them multiple times. And this was their motto. All things are lawful. It's basically a fancy way of saying we're free. So we can do whatever we want. We're free. So we can do whatever we want. You know, as followers of Jesus, we talk a lot about freedom. And rightly so. Through Jesus, we've been forgiven. We've experienced God's grace and we have been set free free from needing to earn God's love and approval, free from being defined by our past, by our shortcomings and our inadequacies, free from having to obey a a set of rules in an effort to be righteous, free from the broken systems and thinking of this world, free even from the power of death. In Jesus, we are free. But what does that freedom actually mean? Martin Luther tried to answer that question back in 1520. He wrote, A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Some translations even say a Christian is a slave to all. See, when Christians talk about freedom, we don't mean that we can do whatever we want. Christian freedom is grounded in love, not for ourselves, but love for God and and love for other people before and above ourselves. It might sound strange to talk about freedom coming with responsibility, but that's one of the ways that God's thinking is different from the ways of this world. For God, true freedom isn't just an individual thing. It's a communal thing. That's why Paul said to the people in our reading today, he said to them, be careful 
that this liberty, this freedom of yours doesn't somehow become a stumbling block for someone else. In other places, he wrote to them saying, sure, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. Christian freedom teaches us a different set of questions, not what are my rights, but rather, what are my responsibilities? Not how do I benefit, but rather, how can others benefit? Not what am I allowed to do, but what is best for the people around me? Not what can I get from this, but instead, what can I give or sacrifice for the sake of someone else to constantly ask, what is the most loving thing for me to do? It's 2,000 years later, and, and I know, at least to the best of my knowledge, that we're not arguing about meat sacrifice to idols anymore, but we're still arguing about lots of other stuff, aren't we? And amidst our conflicts and our division and our disagreements, both in the church and in the world, Paul gives us good questions to ask. Questions like, does it matter more for me to look knowledgeable or to be loving? Do you care more about winning or about loving other people? Are we driven by a a love of knowledge or are we driven by the knowledge of love? Because we can have all the knowledge in the world, but what good is it if it doesn't help us to better love and care for one another? This group in, in Corinth who thought they were smarter, who had taken a problem that was complex and important and reduced it to a slogan that you could slap on a bumper sticker, they lost sight of the fact that eating this meat could do real harm to other people's faith. It would exclude others. It would divide their community. And who the heck cared if they were right if that was the price? Sure, eating food wasn't going to impact their relationship with God, but it might hurt someone else's, and that mattered more than their freedom. So act in love, Paul said. Never eat meat again if that's what it takes. And I know that doesn't make for a good slogan. The way of love is more complex and difficult and demanding, but it is also more healing and rewarding and beautiful. As we all know, these last few months have been tumultuous for our country. And recently I've been hearing a lot of calls for unity. Unity's good at least when it's based on shared commitments that are righteous and just. But unity can also be an idol, an idol that we pursue at the cost of truth and justice. There's a false unity that encourages us to reduce complex issues into something that seems simple so that we can make those who disagree with us appear foolish and wrong. 
a false unity that tempts us to sweep our differences under the rug as if they're not real. But we do everyone a disservice when we reduce our very real disagreements to sound bites and slogans and internet memes that keep us from engaging in deep and substantive ways. We do everyone a disservice when we pretend our divisions don't exist because then they're never addressed or healed. This passage asks us to embrace the fact that the issues we have and face are often complex, that our divisions are often deep-rooted, and we shouldn't pretend otherwise. Because we're not going to make any progress or find true unity until we tell the truth until we learn to respect the dignity and humanity of every person, until we do this hard work of loving one another. And for Paul, this kind of love was everything. In the next chapter of this letter, he's going to write, For though I am free with respect to all, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I might win more of them. Paul loved this way because the thing he cared about most in life was sharing Jesus with other people. And this kind of sacrificial, giving, generous love is what Jesus is all about. Using his freedom to love us is why Jesus came to this earth. Using his freedom to love us is why Jesus walked and lived among us. Using his freedom to love us is why Jesus died on a cross, arms outstretched with love wide enough to hold this whole world. And using his freedom to love us is why Jesus rose again. All of it so that we can know God's love, experience God's forgiveness, receive God's grace, and live free in God's kingdom. That's how Jesus used his freedom to love us. And now he sends us out to do the same. Amen. Amen.